0: This is Tom Lee, Editor-in-Chief for NEJM Catalyst, and we're talking today about how leaders are changing how they lead and manage as they absorb the lessons of the last two years. We're lucky to be talking with Barkley Burdan, the CEO for Texas Health Resources. Some of you might recall how Barkley spoke with us five years ago at an NEGM Catalyst event about what it was like leading Texas Health Resources through the Ebola crisis where they had a patient seen and sent home from the ED with Ebola and then two nurses who became infected. Barkley was very generous at that time, talking about what it was like managing through that set of crises. And I thought it would be great to have him come back and tell us what it's it's like this time around. Barkley, before we get into the lessons learned from COVID, can you give the audience a quick description of Texas Health Resources today?
1: Tom, I'll be happy to, and it's a pleasure to be back with you on the New England Journal Catalyst program. Texas Health Resources is a faith-based nonprofit health system that cares for more patients in North Texas than any other provider. By North Texas, we generally mean the Dallas-Fort Worth area, which is about 16 counties uh, with about 7 million people in it. Uh, We serve the organization uh, in many ways. Um, We serve the population through our physician group. Uh, which has both primary care and specialty physician practices, 29 hospitals, more than 350 points of access, including uh, outpatient surgery, uh, outpatient imaging, uh, urgent care, most recently, uh, and many other uh, affiliated healthcare services. We have about 4,000 licensed beds, about 6,200 physicians with active staff privileges, and about 25,000 employees. So we're a good-sized organization. And over the last decade, we have focused on elevating the needs and the preferences of our consumers as the unifying voice that focuses every aspect of our organization. We're committed to moving beyond episodic sick care to anticipate consumers' needs and other affordable and personalized products and experiences. We're really fortunate that we have a very unique culture at Texas Health it's been built upon what we call our Texas Health promise, which is individuals caring for individuals together. And this long-held creed is really a driving force behind our employee interactions, our business decisions, programs, practices, and patient care. And this year, I'm especially proud of Texas Health because we were ranked number seven on Fortune's 100 Best Companies to Work For in a time when healthcare has undeniably been a challenging industry to work in. And it's uh, remarkable, I think, that Texas Health ranks so high on that list uh, that includes companies from all industries. And I really attribute that to our
0: unique culture underpinned by our Texas Health promise. Well, thanks so much, Barkley. Now, the Ebola crisis was back in 2015, and it seems like a century ago. But I still remember how you described how your long drive going back and forth from your home to work would be time where you could calm down and, and, and put things in perspective. How did COVID arrive for you and for Texas Health Resources? And when did you know it was going to be serious?
1: Well, Tom, like many, we first heard of the new virus coming out of China in January of 2020. Uh, And as the outbreaks uh, spread and we watched news reports and and, uh, talked to colleagues uh, really around uh, the world, particularly in Italy and New York, we knew that it was really only a matter of time until we were treating patients in North Texas. And we started preparing. uh, And our first COVID-19 positive patient walked through the doors at one of our hospitals on March 9th of 2020. We were really in a full ramp-up mode as a system at that point in time. Um, communities were locked down, Uh, we were prepared and waiting. Uh, And then that's what we did, we waited. Uh, Of course, we cared for COVID patients, but in our market, we really didn't experience our first surge until the summer of 2020. Uh, And then we managed our second, this time last year, uh, in a Delta-fueled surge third that peaked for us in September. And now we're speaking on January 5th, and, and right now in North Texas, We're experiencing the Omicron surge like uh, many other parts of the country. Um, So I'd say we knew it would be serious in February of of 2020 uh, and expected then that COVID would be with us for some time. But I I can't really tell you that I could have predicted or would have thought at the time that we would have so many peaks uh, and plateaus and the duration would be
0: so long. Do you think that going through the Ebola crisis helped you and and the rest of your team be better prepared for responding to COVID?
1: Well, I I do. I think we absolutely learned some very valuable lessons. Uh, And I think, you know, first uh, was that the Ebola crisis, while really centered at just one of our hospitals, one of our large hospitals in, in the Dallas area, Um, really reinforced that we have to be financially able to withstand any kind of a catastrophic or unplanned event, uh, things that we might not even imagine. And in 2015, our board of trustees uh, adopted a financial sustainability policy uh, that has really allowed us to continue to fulfill our commitment uh, to providing quality patient care. Um, And I think that's what uh, our communities expect that despite the challenge, uh, the unknowns that we face, that these community assets uh, that we call hospitals and health systems uh, will be there to to meet that challenge. And so so, uh, that was one thing we learned uh, from Ebola was to really be prepared for it, uh, for the unknown really. Uh, We knew from our previous experience that guidelines and protocols would change and need to be adapted to our specific environments. And early on, we instituted a team uh, of clinicians dedicated to daily review all the clinical and safety recommendations and information that was coming from a variety of locations. And most importantly, to determine how they would be implemented at Texas Health for our patient population. And then I think one more thing that was true in Ebola and is uh, still unfortunately very true with this disease, is that uh, medical science uh, turns into social science, which becomes political science and eventually becomes uh, some forms of science fiction. You know, I shared that with you when we talked back in 2016. Misinformation is still a deadly foe and uh, we continue to work to be a trusted source of information for our community, for our leaders and for our people.
0: Now that COVID has gone on and on and on, you know, how has your thinking about this crisis evolved?
1: Well, COVID has clearly been hard to predict. Um, uh, we have seen lockdowns work to keep cases down, uh, but learned that the costs of those uh, activities are very high. Um, we were elated when we received vaccines in December of 2020. But quite frankly, I did not anticipate or expect the adoption would be um, so low or so slow. Um, Variants got a jump on us. And while I think we're still discerning the depths of disruption that the pandemic uh, has and will cause, uh, we have learned and made changes, not just to how we treat the virus, but how we operate as a system. What we learned in 2014 is true today and that's that organizations are ready for some situations and scenarios and other things you really have to learn along the way and that learning has to be done quickly. We keep getting better at learning and adapting quickly. One of our takeaways has been that when we are focused, we are unstoppable and that we can learn, move and change very quickly. To maintain that speed and focus, we move to quarterly planning. Uh, we have more disciplined and defined system priorities and we focus on what actionable steps we can implement or achieve in really three month chunks of time. Um, we are seeing little steps add up to big change and I'm really excited about where this uh, approach has taken us and where it will take us and keep us focused
0: on the priorities of the time. Now, that move toward quarterly planning is one of the things that I found really interesting and exciting when I, I learned about it from you. And I know there's tremendous interest among uh, people around the country in in your in this change uh, for you. It might seem mundane to some listeners, but I know it's going to be completely engrossing to others. So can you talk a little bit more about how you have implemented that quarterly planning and basically how you've modified your budget process to go along with it?
1: Yeah, well, the budget process ties to our, our quarterly uh, approach of being more agile, Tom. you know, Previously, like many organizations, Our annual budget cycle was a five to six month endeavor Uh, in preparation assumptions that went into budget were derived in the early to mid summer for the next year. Our budget and fiscal year was a calendar year. Uh, And we all knew that, and and have grown to know that healthcare changes much too rapidly for most assumptions to remain accurate even uh, over a a relatively short span of time. Uh, And when the budget was done, obviously it was static. We were unable to really update it should changes occur throughout the year, which was, you know, there always were changes. So, you know, monthly reporting and reviewing where we were relative to our plans became, uh, you know, focused on explaining variances. You know, why didn't you make budget? Uh, As opposed to, you know, what has changed and how are you adapting to that change? So the last two years uh, we have shifted uh, really the way that we've looked at planning Uh, from uh, priorities to budgeting uh, and to be successful and to thrive in this constantly changing environment, we really have to be more nimble, more flexible, more adaptable. uh, And those aren't adjectives often associated uh, with healthcare management. So we've shifted to a financial planning process that matches our uh, regular um, strategic planning process. And it's basically, we set priorities, uh, and we update those quarterly. The, the priorities are meant to basically keep people focused on the things that we've determined are the most important at that point in time and to move things through quickly, to remove barriers, uh, to uh, the ability to proceed more quickly. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, the, the, the budget process, the shift there is, is you know, not a coincidence. Uh, it's really a focus on performance management. Um, outcomes fuel action plans and decision making. Um, department focus shifts from managing to a budget to managing to a targeted cost per unit of service uh, and improve performance. And it really, you know, takes weeks to complete kind of the cycles of improvement instead of uh, what might be months.
0: Why well, I was so excited to have you talk about. Uh, uh, this topic, is because I think most organizations in healthcare are at that point where they realize they need to become more nimble, and you actually have changed how you manage to become more nimble. How did you think about incentive programs for your leadership team and other management personnel? I'm assuming that many had incentives based upon improvement from some baseline that was no longer relevant.
1: Well, you're really correct about that. And I think that's true in most organizations. So take net promoter score, which we use in addition to Presque, these HCAPs and CG uh, CHAPs. Uh, we use NPS to reflect loyalty over time based on the consumer's experience. And it is down across the board, uh, not uh, unanticipated, uh, given the restrictions we have in our facilities and the visitation restrictions and all the challenges of caring for COVID people. Uh, But it's not just down for Texas Health, it's down for our industry, and really probably most sectors are looking to recalibrate consumer scores going forward. So a patient might not have the same experience and a family member often doesn't, you know, build the same connection with our staff uh, given the restrictions that we have in place for everyone's safety. But that doesn't mean our people aren't performing and that they should be penalized as a result. Um, so our incentive programs have been based on quality metrics, satisfaction, service metrics, and financial measures, and they still will be. Uh, but we are basing, rebasing some of the trigger, triggers for those uh, and evaluating uh, what's included uh, on an annual basis there. So, you know, really no, no time in the history of uh, our organization has Texas Health and its people lived our promise more than during this pandemic individuals caring for individuals together. And that's why, even though we didn't achieve our financial trigger, for instance, in 2020, uh, you know, we um, uh, basically uh, talked to our board about it. And uh, because of the financial sustainability policy that we put in place uh, several years ago, I referenced earlier in the conversation, uh, the board said, you know, we need to thank and reward our people for the heroic efforts for caring for our community. And we granted uh, last year a promise, what we called a promise bonus uh, to virtually everybody in the organization. Um, and we were you know, really, I think, lucky in a way to be able to do that, but it also resulted from the planning and the, and the foundation that we, we put in place. And we'll be discussing uh, 2020 with, 2021 with our board in, in February after um, you know, we finalize everything and, and get a chance to see where things land.
0: Now, I know that Texas Health Resources was already thinking about moving towards service lines and that COVID has accelerated this thinking. Uh, Can you comment on why you're moving faster in that direction and what it means?
1: Um, You know, creating a a system-level peer group and a community of practice for physicians Uh, within the same specialty across the large organization is what we feel is really crucial uh, for establishing and getting buy-in on best clinical practices, um, reducing the non-beneficial variability that most systems our size see across uh, all their different platforms, Uh, and um, having a clinical leader of a service line from the same discipline with a common experience you know, helps build those peer relationships and and adds credibility. Um, So looking at system level service line approaches also provides a forum for us to really communicate and coordinate uh, pertinent information, discuss data, um, uh, exchange shared learnings and focus improvement efforts. And each service line uh, will be, or has been designed to have very specific clinical quality goals that the entire service line agrees are the ones that we want to pursue and achieve and sustain. Um, it, it really also creates a, a natural interaction node for physicians to collaborate with other specialties and operational leaders at a system level. And it's, it's always interesting when we pull people together from all across North Texas in a particular specialty, um, because what we uh, surprisingly realized is, for instance, Many of the cardiologists that practice in different groups across our geography here don't know one another, <laughs> um, and uh, at first they kind of sit in a room and, and kind of say, "Well, you're a competitor of mine." <laughs> um, but because uh, we're able to kind of um, talk a little bit differently, share common experiences, and develop the relationships, it really helps to align everybody uh, around the the goal of <clears throat> you know giving the best outcome and reducing the variation that that exists across our system, just like it does almost every system. Um, So overall service lines, I think can be viewed as, you know, infrastructure to to drive what we refer to as reliable care uh, and position the organization to be ready for an increasing proportion of value-based payment models where that's gonna be absolutely critical.
0: Well, I think that COVID has probably made real the need to actually perform. And as a former cardiologist, medical director who had limited success suggesting to orthopedists what they should do, I think that your movement makes a lot of sense. Uh, well, let me end by, by asking, like, now that we're starting our second year of the pandemic with a new very, very intense surge, uh, how is that affecting your staff? And what are you doing to counter burnout and turnover?
1: It's something that I think about every day, Tom. Uh, and uh, pleased to tell you that uh, we—I think our culture, uh, the investment we've made in our culture over the years, uh, has really played out well for us. Um, we just recently um, completed a, uh, a survey where about uh, 55% of our employees uh, responded, uh, and. Um, Almost every answer we got was in, in the top quartile when compared against the large national uh, database uh, that Qualtrics has, that is multi um, industry based and also has about a uh, little over a million, a little over a couple million, I think, of, uh, potential benchmark um, opportunities within healthcare. So I was pleased to, um, to hear that. Now, you know, we've obviously had the same kind of challenges that every industry has had as we've gone through, particularly this last summer, uh, where we've um, you know, had people leaving the organization, changing jobs, um, and you know, what we, I think, sometimes call the great retirement. Um, you know, Doctors, nurses, medical staff uh, that, that still have many years of service to the community, but for a variety of reasons, often attributed to burnout, uh, they're, they're choosing to leave. Um, Uh, Again, we're very proud of it. Uh, We have experienced some disruption in the workforce uh, throughout the pandemic. We've seen, uh, however, an improvement in the headcount from our first quarter of of 2021. We revamped our whole talent acquisition service within the organization. And uh, over the last 12 months, we've filled over 10,000 requisitions uh, with over 1,100 in October alone uh, as we try to uh, respond to folks that were leaving the organization for uh, one reason or another. Uh, the amount of time it took to fill uh, a job dropped uh, by about 20%. And so we improved our processes. Uh, and we're also growing in the right areas. So the nursing job family has 375 more employees than it did in January of 2021, uh, which we're very thankful for. And I again tribute this to our strong culture. Um, we, we regularly actually see employees return to Texas Health. Um, uh, we had uh, since July, uh, about 16% of the people that have come back, uh, that have joined Texas Health have come back to Texas Health and were prior employees. Um, you know, we've invested quite a bit in a variety of things to make sure that our uh, staff were well-equipped, felt safe. Uh, and, um, And and then we also invested in a whole variety of uh, economic activity, uh, retention bonuses, uh, you know, different uh, add on uh, pay increases um, uh, in order to continue to recognize people and and understand that many of our employees were experiencing not only the challenge at work, but the same, you know, many challenges at home. Uh, And so there was. No safe place for them to go to feel uh, uh, safe and protected. Uh, we had to make sure that we were doing all we could, both at work uh, and outside of work, to, to encourage um, uh, people to take care of themselves. Um, so um, I would also say, you know, we were uh, happy that we recently were awarded the Medicus Integra designation for physician well being. Uh, And we'll be expanding our Schwartz rounds uh, in addition to hospitalists. And we've we've done some, I think, uh, interesting things uh, during the last year to respond to some of the shortages of people. Um, You know, we established a fat, fat, what I call a fast track uh, PCT apprentice program. Uh, We currently have 70 individuals so far with plans to add 25 to 30 each month uh, during 2022. And we also launched a medical assistant training program uh, with 23 participants and hope to expand that to over 100 hundred uh, this, this year that we've just entered. So we're exploring apprenticeship, we're exploring Earn While You Learn training programs uh, in various allied health areas. And then at the other end of the scale, um, you know, we are tackling staffing shortages Preparing for the future by expanding our uh, GME programs uh, through a partnership um, uh, both with, uh, with uh, UT Southwestern and with TCU, uh, Texas Christian University, UNT, Health Science Center, School of Medicine. So by um, uh, this coming July, we plan to have a total of about 50 residents training in GME program sites uh, uh, covered under our programs and uh, that annual number is expected to increase to more than 110 by July of 2024, and uh, we hope that'll also help to meet the needs in uh, in the core specialty areas uh, for North Texas.
0: Well, you, know, Barkley, you know, thank you so much for sharing uh, what you're doing, and in particularly the sort of restructuring of how you're thinking about goals and the budget process and incentives. I think that. Uh, The way you handled the Ebola crisis back in 2015, I had a lot of respect for it and also the candor with which you talked about it and the, the way you're sharing what you're doing now, I think, is going to also be uh, a good example of leadership for you know the, all of healthcare and your board and your management team should feel very good about that. I, I really hope that there isn't a third enormous crisis anytime soon that uh, sure. <laughs> I'll, we'll be discussing, but if there is, I'm sure that there'll be lessons to be learned from Texas Health Resources uh, for me and for the rest of us. So Thank you once again, and I look forward to talking with you more in the years ahead, hopefully about business-as-usual times, not just crises.
1: Tom, thank you very much.
0: It's been a pleasure talking with you.